Um, first, we're going to start with prayer, though. All right. So, Jesus, we can't really understand your word or have it change us if it's not for your indwelling of the Spirit and you revealing it to us. So I just ask that you'll do that. Um, Lord, that you'll be in our midst as you promised you would be. And, um, Lord, to just kind of help me with reading your word today. And, Lord, I just thank you for uh, the opportunity and that Mark can take a Sunday off and there's people who can stand in um, for him. And so, just praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Give me a second. All right. So... Hebrews is an awesome book. It is also a mysterious book. Some people may not know that the author of Hebrews is actually undecided. Uh, Same for the intended readers. Some think that the book was written by Paul, while others prefer Barnabas, Luke, or Clement. Uh, But God only knows. In the early years of the church history, uh, it was rejected in Western cultures and was not included in the biblical canon. Eventually it was, though, and it's kind of the straggler of the New Testament letters, but it's in there. Um, The book has 13 chapters. It is analyzed into three parts, uh, one all the way to chapter 4, verse 14, is focused on the person of Christ. Um, From there until 1019, the focus is on the work of Christ. And the third section is about the walk of faith. So those dividers are are beginning chapters 1, 4, and 10. And since we will be in chapter 10, it's in the transition from Christ's work into the walk of faith. And I actually like where they put the chapter markers for 10 and 11. I don't disagree with them. I I think they're appropriate. Um, So verse 1 here. I'll read to four. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, in verse 1 there, the author often implies that the temple and its system are a replica of something in heaven. In chapter 9, verse 23-24, it said, I'll read that for you. Uh, It was necessary, then, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. So you can see that it's made clear here that it's kind of a unique setup that it actually reflects something that exists in heaven. So... If you enjoy studies of the temple uh, and how it was built and things like that, it's really neat to think of it as, wow, you're getting a picture of something that's existing in heaven. There's not a lot of that 
available. Um, and for all of verse 1 through 4, that section, um, making sacrifices to God and doing good things, they cannot save you. People's sins are the symptoms of the disease, not the root cause. In the sacrificial system of the law, it was lacking. It was like the band-aid kept falling off. And um, sometimes you could relate that same thing to just doing good works. So let's continue on reading, starting with verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this uh, section, the author is quoting Isaiah 40. Um, In verse 8 there, it says that God wasn't pleased with something he commanded them to do in the law. And that's interesting, I think. Uh, But I'm sure that he still asked them to do that and put that in place for a reason. In 9, it says the first and the second thing. What is that? Well, the first is the sacrifices and offerings, and the second is the he who did his will. So he sets aside the sacrifices and all of that because when Jesus did God's will, he completed it and made it, uh, he set it aside because it wasn't needed anymore. So um, in 10, the, the permanency of Jesus' sacrifice making us holy, it doesn't fade away. Faith in the Christ to come was at the heart of the Old Testament sacrificial system the whole time. And in chapter 11, the author gives plenty of Old Testament examples of saving faith that God honors. And that was of the Old Testament before Christ came. So even in ancient biblical times, there was an opportunity to put faith in the Messiah. The message of Christ has always been there. And that's the joy we get when we read the Old Testament, is that we can read it the way it was meant to be seen, is that it was revealed in Christ when he did his mission, and that when he saved us on the cross. Now, I'm going to continue on, verse 11 there. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, sa- sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I think it's interesting that his enemies are going to be made his footstool. I can imagine God waiting for his ottoman to show up. (laughs) He's like, when can I put my feet up? Kind of an interesting role for an enemy. (laughs) 
it's actually kind of cool if you picture a king sitting on a throne. It's like, no, I don't want him executed. Bring him here. I needed something to put my feet on. <laughs> and it would be an ottoman that self-washes the feet, too. So that'd be great. Sorry, that actually just came to me. I, it's not scripted. <laughs> um, but in 11 and 12, once Jesus finished his death and resurrection, he ascended and went to heaven. He didn't need to keep performing like the priest did. You know, he meant it when he said, it is finished. And verse 14 there, I love the implications of verse 14. So notice the phrase, being made perfect. What Jesus did made them perfect. But in verse 1, the author states that the sacrifices of the Old Testament could not make people perfect. So the author is, com- is complementing verse 1 with this statement with what he does actually makes them perfect. In the Greek here is that the made perfect is a verb that is perfect in voice, meaning that it is completed, finished, decided. It's indicative in mood, stating that it's a fact. And of an active voice, meaning that Christ is the one who did this for us. And it is third person, superlative, superlative meaning that you cannot get any more perfect. In the Greek, it's pronounced tetaliokin. To say it slow enough so you can remember it. <laughs> tetaliokin. But now the being made holy part, or other translations say being sanctified, is hagia zomenos, or zomenes, or yeah, zomenos. Uh, in Greek, anyway. And it's a single verb of the present tense that is also a participle, and that means that you are being changed, being perfected in in the process of. And it is of the middle voice, meaning that it it is you and I and the rest of the church, ecclesia. And i got to be careful on my Greek because i got people here who know it pretty well, and they're going to tell me if I screwed it up. And I probably did anyway, but um, yeah. Uh, but now the you know this is important because it's almost a, you would almost think it's a contradiction if you didn't understand it right. But not only did he make us perfect once for all on the cross, but he's it's a continual process to be sanctified, to have that change you. And it's in God's will that we are existing here on earth the way we are in this strange state of perfect yet being perfected. Or, um, you know, you can almost wonder, would I know better than God to say it would be better if we just, like, became glorified right away and walked around earth and everyone was like, wow, we really do want the gospel? Or would that be too bold of a statement for them? Would they not depend on faith after that? Or the rapture immediately, you know. One could only hope. But God does it his way because there's a reason for that. Um, So you're not only made perfect all the way for all time because of the cross, but you're also undergoing a process, the sanctification process. So let's read from 15 on. 
So the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. He says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And the author is quoting Jeremiah 31 here. And um, isn't it wonderful that we do not have to rely on our own restitution for our sins or an animal sacrifice to have atonement? Is it not wonderful that we have the favor of God? It is. No matter what you try to do to be accepted, no matter your shortcomings, uh, there's a permanency in the sacrifice made for you the price that was paid for you. You know, for the Christian, salvation still belongs to you even right after you sin, even right after the act, even when you are feeling guilty for what you've done, and even when the devil is telling you that you screwed up, when he is telling you that you are not good enough or that you're not a very good Christian. And even then, Christ is telling the Father, I know that person. I died for them. They're mine. Doesn't that make you want to tell yourself, uh, tell yourself that you can forgive yourself if God forgives you? Maybe let yourself off the hook a little bit. If God has paid, uh, paid for your sin, you can feel relief from guilt. And doesn't this grace make you want to be more forgiving to others? Maybe lower the bar for them a bit when it comes to how they measure up to your standards? Give people a pass? Forgive them for lesser things than what you've been forgiven for? Now I'm going to read uh, verse 19. And remember, this is where the focus shifts from the work of Christ to the walk of faith in Hebrews. Um, so verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since you have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, what did the temple have to separate the most holy place? Wasn't, was it not a big old curtain? A curtain that was torn down the middle when Christ died on the cross. In the heavenly version, Christ is the way to the Father. Matthew 27, I'll read this for you, uh, says, at, at that moment, uh, verse 51, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split. So right when Jesus died and he said it was finished, you know, that curtain was torn. should have been pretty obvious what that meant. Christ is the way in, and you have access now because his body was, it might not have been torn, but it was broken for us, you know. And in John two eighteen through 19, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And so this temple that he's talking about was his body when he came back to life and he showed that 
the sacrifice for sin was accepted by God and that we have victory over death by raising from the dead. You don't need a priest to go into that temple with that torn curtain any longer. You don't need anything other than this. It's perfect. Jesus is the way to the Father. He's the only way. So, verse 21, I'm going to read further. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Having our assurance that we are forgiven, promised, and destined, we can move forward. We can move forward in confidence of a new life, the Christian life. And we're free to approach God in prayer and to experience life in His Spirit. This is uh, why the title of the sermon today is To Hold Unswervingly. This means living in one direction. Not to live in a contrary way. The Old Testament sacrificial system was hopeless. Trying to be good enough is hopeless. Jesus said the only way to the Father is through him. And we have a better way. One that we can boast about. Have you done that? Have you boasted recently to somebody? Even to a fellow Christian. They might know it. Maybe you just need to encourage each other with that. Like, you are forgiven. You are a child of God. You're not just forgiven. You're also brought into that in that close family with God. And maybe remind each other of that from time to time. And so this changes the dynamic of how we live. We don't do good so that we can be accepted. There's a lot of religions out there where that's what you do. No, we are accepted and so... Because of that, we live in the Spirit. And as we live in the Spirit, we live free to love and to be partners with the will of God. And doing good just comes from that. It's not going to be something you put effort in. Sin won't be as appealing. Because finally, you're, you're free of that. So, just wanting to be some with God and not with your sin anymore you'll be accidentally doing great things for God all the time. Verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And the day approaching is the day of judgment, or the great day of the Lord. So the last verse said uh, in 23, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, right? But we don't just do that alone. We do that together. And that is why verse 24 and 25 are about having our hope in common. This isn't only just an encouraging verse that can stand alone. You know, maybe you just put that on your fridge or whatever. I think it should be read in the light and the context of this chapter. That it was put here with confidence 
that we share of a perfect sacrifice for our sin and a perfect high priest. And that is what compels us to do the will of God and to live by faith, to live the life together. It is God's will to love one another and bear with one another and to be the church together. That's what God wants. Can you imagine what it would be like if we started a tradition here in this church to make a giant deal about each other's birthdays? What if we blew it out of proportion every time for everyone? I mean, that would be very interesting. I can imagine it would look weird to outsiders, that's for sure. (laughs) And what if it wasn't our physical birthdays that we did that with? What if it was our uh, saved by dates instead, our real birthdays? Wouldn't we look more like the church is supposed to look to the world around us? I mean, you should. You should celebrate each person here when you, you know that something happened in their life and God has overcome it and that they're through it. We should be celebrating with them. We should be recounting each other's testimonies to each other because what better way of worshiping than to not only be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, but to be his witnesses to each other, to encourage each other. And what if this church had no animosity in it? Could you imagine that? If everyone here forgave each other as Christ did? And what if we approached or dealt with each other without fear in this church? No fear of forgetting someone's name because you just met them or you haven't yet. No fear of letting them into our lives for some reason. Maybe you don't want them to see. Maybe you don't want them to come over to your house. Maybe it's dirty. Maybe you're ashamed of something silly. What if you had no fear of them imposing on your time or your property and you didn't guard it and you let them in? No fear of hiding sin from one another. You know, that's that letting go of that fear can be done when you realize what the Bible tells us about who we are, what chapter 10 is telling us here. And when you encourage each other with that, you're reminding each other. You're reminding that you don't have anything to lose. You're, you're completely free to love. You don't have to have that fear because when we react with each other, we don't do it like secular people do. You know, maybe if this person says something about what I'm doing, I could take offense to them. And I would be justified by all my, my peers that aren't church. <laughs> but then I would go to one of my, my fellow um, people here that love me, and they would tell me, you know, you did become a member. and that You actually said that we could speak into your lives and hold you accountable. And I'd be like, oh, dang, yeah, that's what membership means. <laughs> well... You know, well, if someone does something and it would normally be justified outside of the outside in the world, it probably isn't that way here. We allow each other to speak in each other's lives and hold each other accountable and to encourage each other. Sometimes encouraging each other isn't just saying, oh, you look really good in that shirt. Encouraging each other can be something like, you know, I noticed that you're really not living like 
you're professing you do. But what other kinds of ways can you, to love each other and encourage each other can you think of to spur each other on? This isn't just like encouraging each other to go to a Christian concert or to do a Bible study or attend Sunday school. This is encouraging each other with how we are victors over sin and how sometimes the encouragement, it's not going to feel good. Maybe sometimes we encourage each other by confronting one another in love. And by the way, sometimes love doesn't feel good. In verse 25, uh, you can't really encourage each other to love and do good works if you have nothing to do with the church. It says not to forsake the gathering together, as is the habit of some, right? Well, if if you're not going to be part of the church and you're just going to go do solo, you can't really encourage each other. You can't follow the commands of the Bible, especially since it directly says that. Anyway, but I've heard some people tell me that they don't want to go to church because they had a bad experience. Because they were part of a church that split. And isn't it unfortunate that the church is made up of sinners? Well, the answer is no, because if it was, wasn't made up of sinners, I wouldn't be allowed to come. And I've heard other people um, tell me that they would rather go into nature, that that's their church, um, be out in the wilderness. And they can see the revelation of God there. Um, but that's severely lacking, if you ask me. God has made contact with people and revealed himself even further than that. He chose a people, people of faith, the people, you know, the Jews, but also the Christians. And he's revealed not only the goodness of God's character, but also the plan of salvation through his Son. Even the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a revelation that teaches us so much more than we could get from just going out in creation. We have a special revelation from God. And that's something that you're not going to get if you don't come together and be part of the community. If I was to be part of a social club here on this planet, I would much rather go to one that has the Holy Spirit and people who are being sanctified in it than one without. They'll talk about how the people in church aren't, they're not perfect. I can't go to church. I hate church. Those people are not perfect. Okay, but you do go to the bar every Saturday. Those people aren't perfect either. You could say that, but, you know, we're we're at least better than we were yesterday. The Holy Spirit's changing us. And so, getting back to what that says, you know, 24 and 25, is the hope that we have in Jesus it. It's our way to our Father, and the hope of salvation we have is a good thing, but it's also a good thing that we're not the only ones. Could you imagine if it was just you, not the other people here in this room? You're not the only one. You have someone beside you who has the privilege of experiencing the same confidence, and the pleasure of that confidence can be shared with one another. In verse 25, it says, As the day approaches... It implies that the people in the end times should probably encourage each other even more than before. And we are in the end times. So let's keep on reading verse 26. 
If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy, or common, in some translations, thing the blood of the covenant and sanct- that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If Jesus isn't enough, then nothing will be. If you think that you have some other way to reach God other than the mercy he provides, then you are mistaken. But what would remain? Well, you would become that footstool mentioned in verse 13. In verse 26, it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning. Did you know that the Jews had different offerings for unintentional sin that could be administered? There were our sin offerings and guilt offerings. You can read about that in Leviticus. I think it's early in the book, like five or seven or something. I hope that's right. Anyway, I looked this up um, for the sermon prep, but I decided to not go too far into that, so you guys didn't have to sit here too long. (laughs) I mean, all right. Uh, You know, you can't just choose Jesus and sin. It's like choosing a contradiction. Imagine someone offered you an apple and an orange. And you say that you choose the apple. And then you grab the orange. And no matter how much you say that you chose the apple, you're eating the orange. I'm comparing apples to oranges here. (laughs) Your intentions were the apple. And your claim was the apple. But your choice was, in fact, the orange. So you can't say you choose Jesus and in action choose sin. The work of Jesus is to defeat sin. But if you battle on the side of sin, on the sin side, then you make Jesus your enemy and the sacrifice for sin cannot apply to you. And that's why it, it just, there isn't a middle ground. You choose it by what you decide to do with your life. No matter what you say you did. Jesus will vouch for that later. Anyway, so you could wonder if there's a portion of turning your life around and some sin that you struggle with. Even if, even though others in your life you have victory over, you still have that one sin or several things and you're, you, know, you justify it to yourself. You know, it's just because I'm being sanctified. I'm not perfect. No one is. And that's why I can't let that go. And you might ask yourself, are you 60% saved? Or are you not at all? Well, I'll tell you, you are 100% saved or you're 0% saved. One day, that will be decided. And do not let the enemy tell you that you're not saved because you're not good at, good at being a Christian. It really doesn't, it doesn't matter yet. Wait till... 
God comes and he, on the great day when he comes back and he, he sees, he'll tell you, you are covered. If you are covered with his blood, with what he's done, you'll know. And if by the end you've chosen grace over your sin, then that will be the entire existence. Your entire existence has been 100% covered at that point. You either are or you aren't. Can you imagine, <clears throat> here I go again with that, can you imagine having not only all of your regular sin, but also the sin of having rejected probably the greatest act of God to mankind, that is, trading places with the sinner, and having that added to your indictment when you face God face to face. So not only your regular sin that you're guilty for, but also being someone who says that you're a Christian, and yet you didn't actually live that. Well, that would be even worse. I would hate to... I wasn't going to say this part, but you remember that phrase, there's a special place in hell for that person? I wonder if there isn't actually places in hell that are reserved for those who did exactly what it says here, trampled the grace of of Christ underfoot and treated it as a common thing. You know, because that, that's got to be even so much worse. And, uh, you know, well, it's a real danger. There could be a day in your future when that's a factual situation for you, whether you can imagine it today or not. If you're going to choose sin over God, then do it. What did the Spirit say to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3? He said, and I'll read it for you. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And then in 22 of that same chapter, uh, final verse, says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's that's a warning for everyone, not just the church of Laodicea. That's why it's in the book. The enemy wants to speak blame and shame into your ear. If he can get you to doubt, it will diminish your faith. Because what is the opposite of faith? It's doubt. But you are saved by faith. Faith in Christ. But faith in Christ comes from choosing him over sin. He came to remove the sin from your life so that you so that it cannot come between you anymore. And if you drag that right back between you two again, then your faith is just a facade to yourself even. Let it no longer shed doubt on your relationship with God. Literally live by faith, not doubt. Do not let Satan have a foothold. Because guilt from sin leads to admitting defeat and then choosing sin again in the future. Don't look back. God isn't. Look ahead. Fill your life with love and good deeds, enough that there's no room for temptation. Actually choose God over sin. And because of that, and you've made that final, and you've made that decision, and it's decided, you can put that doubt that Satan keeps keeps reusing to bring you down behind you and actually live by faith. 
verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Verse 35 has a therefore in it, which means that it was the point the author was leading to in the previous uh, passages. Always watch out for those therefores. They're really important. Uh, He was telling them not to cast away their confidence, which was of great reward. The confidence that the author has or was talking about previously in the chapter the confidence in having Jesus as their great high priest and atoning sacrifice. And it's the same confidence, he said, that believers should encourage each other with. The same confidence that we also have in common. In verse 36, he says, For you have need of endurance, so that you, after you have done the will of God, you may, have, you may receive the promise. But I'm about to get to that. So... I'm going to skip this part because of time, although it was a pretty cool story. You guys are missing out. Anyway, uh, let's get on to verse 36. You need to... um, Did I read verse 36 yet? I don't think I did. There it is. Okay. All right. You need to persevere so that you have done the will of God... You will receive what he has promised for just a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not delay. And by my righteousness, one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in one who shrinks back. And this I say to Evanston Alliance Church, verse 39. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved. And isn't that right? And if you're ready to give up your sin, to not only choose uh, Christ over sin, but you claim 100% forgiveness for your sins from what Jesus did, can I get an amen? And if you are one of the ones that he says shall live by faith and not draw back, as he quoted from Habakkuk here, then will you say amen? And let's do one more. If you are one who does not forsake the gathering together, but instead encourages each other with this confidence of salvation, will you say amen? And since we are of the faithful, let us go forward in our earthly lives with the comfort of being 100% covered by Jesus our worthy sin offering, because we too need the endurance of our faith, especially as we see how close we are to the day of the Lord. And so, I'm going to close right there. And so, if you'll pray with me. Lord Jesus, uh, we we really do want to surrender ourselves completely, but we also want to be very bold in the faith of what you've done for us, Lord. And let us encourage each other with that same boldness and confidence that we will 
Use it to praise you and to worship you for what you've done. And that we won't have any fear of persecution or opposition, Lord. And that we'll be able to have victory over our sin and to give it up, to truly repent, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you're with every one of us here as we go throughout the week, that you would be the focus of our lives and that we would reflect you in the world around us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.